Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, welcome to the Josh Marshall Podcast. I'm David Tainter, in for Josh today got a lot going on. We've had Trump's flop of a campaign rally over the weekend. We had voting in Kentucky, in New York, and other places uh, yesterday. Lots of primary races, and a lot of those are unsettled still. We have absentee ballots being a big factor in these races, and we might not know until kind of as late as next week who some of the winners are. Uh, But before that, let's take care of just a little bit of business and uh, get to the show. If you're roughing it in the wilderness or traveling to some remote destination, which is probably a good idea in these pandemic times, finding the perfect cup of iced coffee can be a serious challenge. But Grady's Cold Brew is here to help. Grady's reusable all-in-one cold brew kit is ultra light and packs flat so it's easy to stash in your suitcase or backpack. All you need to do is add water, tap or bottled or filtered, directly from a mountain stream even. No electricity or refrigeration required when you brew it this fresh. Each kit makes 36 cups of coffee for only 30 bucks, and shipping is free. Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City. It's been there since 2011. So are you ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order of Grady's Cold Brew at Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM. Now, a lot of us at TPM just got uh, a sort of home office supply of Grady's Cold Brew, which is very exciting. I'm drinking some now. Uh, Kate, you got yours as well? Yeah, got it. Haven't put the pieces together yet, but it nice. is taking up square footage. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us today is Josh Kavensky, uh, an investigative reporter in our New York office. Hey, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. How about you? You've got some Grady's on deck somewhere? Uh, you know, deep in the bowels of my fridge right now. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> not with me. I, I, I didn't foresee that. Yeah, yeah no, I understand. <laughs> well, before we get to some of the uh, electoral news of the moment, Josh, you had a big scoop on the site yesterday that I wanted to uh, to talk to you about. Basically, the gist of the story is that the federal government is is ending funding for kind of local testing sites in a number of states, right? And Texas is one of those. Um, and some of these places where the coronavirus is really ramping up, you know, we in New York, where uh, a lot of us are based here and in D.C., um, you know, the numbers have improved a lot. New York City just entered phase two of its reopening. Uh, I think Josh and I have just had our first restaurant experiences in the <laughs> in the last sort of few months, uh, yeah. which is interesting and kind of exciting. Um, but in places like Arizona, places like Texas, Florida, you know, the numbers are just skyrocketing. I think Florida maybe just set a, a record for a kind of highest, you know, COVID cases spike. Josh, you've written a lot about Arizona, setting records for ventilator usage, ICU beds being occupied, numbers of cases and all that. So tell us about your story, kind of how it came together and what, what our listeners should know about the situation right now. Sure. So the story came from a tip 
Um, and I guess I can't really disclose like more mm. about uh, who that was or how that came to be. But basically, we've got a sense that the federal government's support for uh, certain testing programs was slated to end at the end of the month. Um, and so we started to look into it. Uh, I think it's worth keeping in mind this came in an atmosphere uh, in which President Trump has been you know, expressing his opposition to testing, um, in which you know, expert, public health experts have said that uh, even at the levels the U.S. is testing now, it's not really enough to fully track and contain the outbreaks as they occur. Um, so we were interested to look more into what was going on. And what we found was that basically the federal government at the very beginning of the pandemic in March set up a number of, or a couple dozen, I think it was, it's 40, numbers 41, drive-through testing sites around the country, um, you know, staffed by both state, local, and also federal employees, and sites where the federal government would provide testing kits and also provide contracts with laboratories and patient and patient notification call center, basically, you know, for areas that don't have capacity to, uh, you know, do testing to monitor the outbreak, the federal government can step in and do this. The Trump administration portrays it as something that was always meant to be short term, something that was meant to transition. But what we found was that in a state like Texas, which still has seven of these sites, the state is still substantially relying on these sites to, you know, meet the testing capacity that it needs to try and track the extent of the outbreak and make sure that people who are sick know what they have. And what we found was that the federal government, in spite of that, the Trump administration, you know, through the Department of Health and Human Services is letting support, which again is in the form of money, but also these contracts and the testing kits lapse for the remaining sites. Uh, there's still 13 of them around the country, letting it lapse at the end of this month. And it's interesting, Texas, I mean, one of the first states to really aggressively reopen, I guess it wasn't quite as, I don't know, egregious as Georgia, um, took a, a bit more of a cautious approach, but really was pretty early on that. I think even last night, Governor Greg Abbott had told Texas residents to like stay inside, right? Because yeah. the cases have gotten so bad. So um, tell us kind of about some of the reaction to this story sort of overnight and and into this morning, um, what sort of officials both in, in places like Texas and then also national, uh, you know, congressional Democrats are, are saying about it. Sure. So the reaction I think was, I think when people first saw it, the first thing they thought of was Trump's comments that uh, he's going to shut down testing. Right. Um, I mean, that was the context in which people read it. And so the response was that, oh, this is, this is what's happening. Whereas, which is a little bit different, what we reported is that they're, I mean, they're not actively making the decision to shut it down. They're letting the funding lapse. Um, I think some people would argue that's kind of a distinction without a difference. I'll leave that to listeners or readers to decide for themselves. Um, more broadly, though, the reaction has been, you know, from national politicians, I think on both, to the extent of both sides of the aisle, that uh, the feds should continue supporting the testing sites, at least those in Texas. Um, we saw Ted Cruz say he had asked uh, HHS and FEMA to continue supporting the sites. Um, four Congress people, all of them, I think, are Democrats, um, representing Houston and the area around it, sent a letter to HHS demanding that the sites uh, stay open or that support continue for the sites. The Assistant Secretary of Health, who's overseeing this, Brett Giroir, he released a statement last night uh, calling our story truthful but misleading, which was nice. <laughs> uh, and but he also that's like glowing from this administration. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> um, which it was funny. But his, I mean, but it was. I mean, I, I guess I would argue that his statement was misleading because <laughs> what he said was that um, you know these sites are antiquated, that they're transitioning to something better, um, that you know the governors of the five states still have these testing sites, um, all agreed with his plan. 
Um, so far, New Jersey governor, the governor of New Jersey has said publicly that he agreed with the plan, but we also have this outpouring from local officials, both in Texas and Colorado, and now most recently in Pennsylvania, based on reporting I'm doing, saying that, no, they want these things to remain open. Right. Um, is, there, is the New Jersey example just maybe, uh, you know, because it, a state like New Jersey, which is close to New York and Connecticut, you know, yeah. those the governors of those states have all worked pretty closely together to get the pandemic under control. Is, right. Is um is Phil Mur Phil Mur Murphy Murray yeah is is that just part of the New Jersey in general having it more under control that they're they support maybe kind of withdrawing this funding or letting it lapse as opposed to these other states that are really still having cases pile up. It could be. I mean, we're doing more reporting on that right now. The situation there is they have two sites that are being funded under this program, um, in the both in like northern New Jersey and the New York City suburbs, uh, and what they have said is that they're. I mean, Murphy's statement was very weird in a way because what he said yesterday was that great news. Um, we got the federal government to agree to maintain not those two sites, but a separate program that it's running, which allows testing in pharmacies to occur. Mm. To occur. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what's not clear to me is whether or not the loss of test kits and staff at these two sites in the New York City suburbs is going to mean an overall loss of capacity for New Jersey or if they're finding a way out. Um, what other places are doing, like in Dallas, for example, they're going to have to shut down one site. Um, which is a big deal because people are facing really long lines to get tested there. But at the same time, um, they're trying to make up for the lost capacity by dipping into funding they got from the federal government under the CARES Act. I think the distinction for listeners there is that the money that they're getting from the feds to just run these sites doesn't come out of the city budget or the state budget, whereas the CARES Act money that they'd be spending on that could be spent another te- more, even more testing or other things. So it just right. kind of dips into the overall. It, it, it takes a chunk out of the overall pie of money that they have. Sure, that makes sense. Well, maybe maybe let's backtrack for just a second to kind of explain some of the context around Trump's remarks about testing. So this first came out on Saturday night, his big rally in Tulsa. One of the kind of big headlines out of that, other than the sea of empty seats he faced when he got on stage, was the president saying he asked his administration to slow down the testing, please. Right. That, you know, doing too much testing means you have too many cases and kind of launched into this whole confusing back and forth that often happens in this administration where some of Trump's aides and surrogates went on the Sunday morning news shows the next day to say, oh, he was just kidding. And just kind of that was made in jest. Trump himself on Monday came out and said, I don't kid. Um, I wasn't kidding about that. And then his press secretary a little bit later on Monday said Trump was using sarcasm to make a serious point. So that's just sort of the anything I'm missing there, Kate, about the kind of surreal, I don't know, 72 hours or so that happened after that. But that's kind of the that's the background in which this kind of comes out. Right. No, that, that seems to cover it to me. So, Josh, you mentioned you're doing a lot of reporting, obviously, on on how this is playing out in these different states and these different, you know, testing sites. What where do you see this going next? What's the kind of what are the, the elements of the story our listeners should keep an eye out for as, as we go forward? So I think there's two things to pay attention to. One is the ongoing reaction and whether or not that's going to lead the government to reverse itself and uh, keep the sites uh, supported. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of pressure for that in Texas. Um, there might be some coming in Pennsylvania as well. So that's something to definitely keep an eye on, whether or not they reverse. We also know that um, the Trump administration tried to do this back in April. And after a public outcry, they were forced to reverse themselves. So that's going to be really interesting to watch. I think the other thing to keep an eye on is that, you know, we're talking about 13 sites that are slated to lose support next week, but there were initially 41. 
Uh, so there's a big question about what happened to the 28 sites in between. I mean, why did they shut down? Did the states do it after asking for them to be opened? We know that the Texas sites have been asking for weeks now for them to be kept open or to be kept supported. And the Trump administration has refused to extend the support. So, you know, what happened with these other sites? Were there requests for extensions that were refused or ignored? Um, and that's, I think, a really interesting question, particularly given that we're seeing all these new hotspots. Um, I think any epidemiologist will tell you that what you need to do to con control and monitor and contain an outbreak is really extensive uh, surveillance in the form of testing. Um, I was talking to an epidemiologist yesterday who worked on AIDS outbreaks in Africa. And he was telling me that the first thing they did was they would do widespread testing to just determine how much virus there was, to determine the, scale, the scope of the outbreak. So the idea that they reduced any kind of capacity over this time, um, you know, and then we have more cases uh, is, I think, troubling. Yeah. Well, Josh, it's great reporting. And it was really awesome to see your story kind of ricochet around the web yesterday, just from obviously public officials who are responding to it, but also just readers and um, I don't know other journalists. It's always great to see work like that reverberate. So congratulations on that. Great, thanks. It's great talking to you guys. Good to talk to you thanks, too. We'll Josh. talk soon. Thanks. thanks. Bye. All right, Kate. Well, let's um, let's let's talk politics now and election nights, which I know is one of your favorite uh, <laughs> favorite times of the year whenever they come around. So we had a number of pretty consequential primary races uh, last night, a couple of which happened in the New York City region mm -hmm. um, involving, you know, powerful House committee chairs, uh, Representative Elliot Engel and Carolyn Maloney. Um, you had written about their races this morning, and we still don't know the, you know, the official outcome, but mm -hmm. um, a pretty surprising result in the Engel race, at least. So tell yeah. us kind of about, tell us about some of those results. Yeah, so, I mean, at this point in New York, they uh, can't start tabulating the absentee ballots for eight days after the election. So, um, and especially, you know, a race in the time of coronavirus, there are way more absentee ballots than usual. So this race is, you know, unfinished, but Engel in particular is well back right now from his challenger. Um, so, yeah, Engel is kind of, absent from from the district or at least that's what he was criticized for being and it was one of these guys who had won so many times that it was just kind of you know the re-election is rote at this point in the house you're up every two years and just I guess didn't his constituents didn't really see him putting his heart into it and then he had a challenger who was well suited to the district and when you have those combination of factors you know we've seen it topple veteran lawmakers before um, and Engel is kind of in a similar situation he has received a lot of criticism for being absent from the district, especially during the coronavirus pandemic, because his district includes New Rochelle in New York, which was, you know, the original outbreak in the state. So he was kind of holed up in Washington during that time um, and never really had a good explanation for it. I mean, he's he's old. He's 73, I think. But he never really used that. He was just kind of being evasive, saying, like, I've been I've been there. I've been part of it, even though he was in Can Washington. Even say he was March. like he was quarantining in both places, in both which places, is literally, yeah. you know, that's exactly. Yeah. To, and to one question about a, a mask giveaway that was happening in his district, he was like, oh, I was a part of that. And the reporter was like, no, you weren't. You weren't there. And he was like, well, I was a part of it, you know, so he was already kind of um, seen as being away from his constituents in, you know, the time of extremely great suffering. And then to add insult to injury during a um, press conference amid all the George Floyd protests, he was caught on the mic 
telling the borough president, you know, he wanted to speak and the borough president was like, well, we have a lot of speakers here. Um, and Engel said something to the effect of, you know, normally I, I wouldn't care, but I'm in a primary. And honestly, I do, I, I do buy his explanation here that he wasn't saying he doesn't care about the civil unrest. He was saying normally he wouldn't care about being given the prominence of giving a speech, except that constituents should hear from him on a primary right. year. But you can see how it's easily misconstrued. And that is how the his challenger played it as, you know, we should right. care about the community always. So Right. It comes off kind of craven as sort of like I'm exactly. only here because I'm in a, a tough, mm -hmm. a tough primary race. Right. So kind of combination of those factors um, and then his opponent, uh, Jamal Bowen. That sounds right. Yeah. Bowen. He's a um, high school principal, right? Um, yeah. Middle school. Middle but, school, um, yeah. yeah. He also kind of came into his own during, um, the George Floyd protests and swept a lot of late breaking endorsements from the AOC Bernie wing of the party. Um, yeah, so Engel looks to be in a pretty dire position. And he's, you know, he's not no one in the party. He heads up the Foreign Affairs Committee, which most recently has been heavily involved in the um, slate of firings of uh, inspectors general right. in the government. So that would be a, a pretty major coup. Um, and then Maloney seems, she's a bit safer. She has a slim, a very, very slim lead right now, only about one point. But I think the kind of general consensus is that absentee ballots will uh, probably break her way. Yeah. Um, but she's another kind of veteran lawmaker, actually went up against the same challenger in 2018 and, you know, disposed of him with like 20% of the vote. Um, her race has been different, though. It's been very very vicious, I guess. Um, she's kind of, he did this gimmick where he made fake Tinder profiles to engage voters. And apparently he also had this joke he made at one point about um, a 40-year-old and a 17-year-old dating is not that bad. So she packaged those things together to try to make him look creepy, uh, hostile to women. And he said that that was racist and uh, has been really hitting her on her you know, once champion belief that um, vaccines are linked to autism. And so he's using that to kind of paint her as like, is this the kind of person you want to lead you during a pandemic? So right. their race has been different, but um, still, you know, really close. And in both of those, we're going to have to wait a week yeah. to find out yeah. either way. It will be really interesting to see how the absentee ballot uh, results shake out in not just these races, but kind of all over the, you know, all over the country right. where... Uh, absentee voting and early voting is 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 becoming more of a reality amid the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, just personally, I sent my absentee ballot in on Monday, and so mm -hmm. you know, it maybe hasn't even reached the uh, the Brooklyn you know elections office where it was where it's ultimately uh, being oh, sent geez. to, and and so you know what I mean. It could be you know could be in the coming days it's it's received and then yeah tabulated into next week like we're saying right and so well, definitely will be yeah go ahead no i mean that's a weird thing too what you're saying is like we as americans have generally you know it's unusual if you don't find out who won the election that night and right. before that's only been true because it's really really close and like it triggers a recount and things like that and you know this is it's weird. This is the first time where we could have races that really aren't all that close that we had to wait days to find out who won. Right. Yeah. Like you say, the angle is is 
trailing by something like 30 points yeah, well at the down. moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess there's something like a million absentee vote ballots maybe kind of still in the working their way through the mail system. Mm-hmm. But um, it's pretty remarkable that even in what appears to be a landslide type victory, uh, we still have no official result and right. won't and won't I for mean, a little while. And that's something that I think, you know, election types have been warning about for a while and that I don't think... I mean, right now, it's like majority of people, unfortunately, don't really pay attention when it's not presidential, you know? So you're not really, you're not seeing people like taking to the streets being like, did Elliot Engel win or not? (laughs) But, you know, in November, we'll have one of the biggest ticket presidential elections of our lifetimes. And if these races are any you know, any sign if the pandemic is still horrible then and a ton of people are voting by mail. I mean, can you imagine having to wait a week to find out if Trump won or not and how he's going to act? Like, I mean, there's no way he'll be reasonable about it or, you know, trust the process. He's going to be like, this is corrupt. Totally. I mean, election nights already were basically 4 a.m. situation, you know, in the office until the very wee hours of the morning. And Mm -hmm. now we're looking at like election week, maybe. And who even knows what that's going to look like? Um, I mean, I think the only way we will know election night is if it's a landslide. Yeah. Right. Which I mean, it could be. We were kind of talking earlier in the show about a New York Times poll out today that showed Biden ahead by double digits, which is pretty... Yeah, let's talk about uh, sort of the presidential race a little bit, too, and mm-hmm. rewind back to uh, Trump's rally over the weekend that we, we've we touched on a little bit at the top of the show. I think leading up to this rally, first of all, uh, it was originally scheduled for Juneteenth, which is the anniversary of uh, sort of the last, I guess, slaves in Texas being, you know, mm-hmm. freed or, or hearing the news of the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, a, a very significant date, obviously, you know, in the black community and just in America's history. And Trump decided that that would be a good time to hold a a kind of his comeback reelection rally Mm -hmm. in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is also the site of uh, the Tulsa race uh, massacre that I think a lot of, you know, it's obviously a key historical event too, but um, really became in a way more kind of in the public consciousness uh, after that show, The Watchmen. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. touched on it in their in the first episode there great show if you haven't seen it um so i think originally you know a lot of the worry of this campaign rally was first just the coronavirus threat obviously of having tens of thousands of people inside a packed arena mm-hmm. uh you know shouting and cheering and exposing one another and then also you know the risk of protesters clashing with trump supporters outside um any kind of unrest or escalation that that might cause but really when all the dust settled, the I think the big story out of it was how few people actually did show up, right? It was something right. like 6,200 people, less than half of the capacity of the Bank of Oklahoma Center mm-hmm. in Tulsa, where it was held. Um, you know, lots of photos of, I think even the Washington Post called it like a blue wave of empty <laughs> seats because the, yep. the arena kind of chairs were all mm-hmm. blue, blue seats. Um, to you, Kate, does that, I mean, is this kind of a harbinger of of how things will go in November? Do you think it's indicative of Trump, you know, losing steam among his supporters? Or is it just that, you know, the coronavirus pandemic is still very much top of people's minds, especially in places in the Southwest, kind of like Oklahoma, mm-hmm. um, where the numbers are increasing and people just aren't comfortable yet being in a in close quarters? What do you right. make of all that? 
Well, one thing that really struck me was I think it at the very least shows that there is a limit to how far Trump's followers will follow him. You know, like this is a case where Trump has been saying and angling for weeks that you're a weenie if you wear a mask, you know, that we need you to be a warrior and reopen the economy. And that's been his attitude for at least a month at this point. Um, you know, and we've seen some proof that people are following his lead, that especially in red states, there's been a lot of pushback to any kind of mask mandates, you know, creating its own pool of risk. But this is, you know, one of the first very clear cut examples we saw that at least some of his supporters will not do that, are not trusting his word over their own concern for their health. And while that for like a normal politician, I think would seem, well, yeah, duh, no one's going to listen to a politician above their own, um, you know, self-preservation. Trump's fan base is just so, you know, rabid. And so yeah, I mean, we, we saw people lining up almost a week ahead of time, right? I think there were people camping out in line days, right. if not a full week before the rally was set to be held. And that's kind of the, also the thing that he hung his hat on last time, or like these massive rallies and, uh, you know, just really diehard supporters. And yeah, Tulsa showed us that for a good chunk, you know, it, their concern for their own health outweighs their support for him, which also shows that they at least are taking what he's saying with pretty heaping spoonful of salt. So right. now, I mean, I don't know if that transitions into not supporting him anymore, but at least I think it shows cracks in the MAGA monolith that we mm -hmm. haven't really seen before. Right, because Oklahoma is not exactly a swing state, right? right? I mean, Trump carried it handily in 2016. It's not, it's not a... Yeah, it's not a swing state. It's mm -hmm. not a state that Biden has in play, unlike maybe in Arizona or um, even Texas or right. Georgia. Some of these states that are traditionally conservative but have started to trend a bit more purple mm -hmm. in, in recent uh, recent cycles. But yeah, even still, I guess, you know, there was supposed to be an outdoor rally, kind of an overflow <laughs> right. event uh, around the Tulsa rally that was canceled, I guess, basically because there was no overflow, right? I mean, there right. weren't even... The, the arena itself wasn't even full. Right. And there's, you know, there are other factors of that rally that are interesting to me. Like there was a Washington Post reporter there who was kind of taking pictures of, you know, the tailgate atmosphere outside before people got in. And one observation he had, which is just a trend that I've kind of been observing for the entire cycle, is that there wasn't a lot of specifically anti-Biden merch. You know, there was stuff about the Clintons and liberals being losers in general, but not a lot of specifically targeted anti-Biden things. And I think that is a problem that we've been seeing Trump have this entire time. And that, you know, you, me and Josh, we've discussed months ago is that Biden is a harder person for Trump to villainize because he you know, misogyny plays into this for sure, as does just their like different political trajectories, but he doesn't have the decades of suspicion and dislike piled up on him that Hillary Clinton had, which I think, you know, I think Trump is sometimes given credit for this like incredible political prowess when in reality he tapped into a lingering dislike that's been pretty obvious surrounding Hillary Clinton for you yeah. know the decade she's been in office. That's a good point, too, that even at these 2020 rallies, 
like anti they're still chanting lock her up right oh exactly you see these you see the kind of yeah the disparaging clinton merch and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff and that still like fires people up and motivates them and i guess you know it's maybe basking or reveling in in trump's unlikely victory and Mm -hmm. you know people who support him obviously are somewhat anti-establishment or just kind of want to rub it rub it in liberals faces but um but yeah it's gonna be hard to make that stick with biden who's uh, kind of the same age as Trump. Um, mm-hmm. Not that they're similar in their demeanor or anything <laughs> like that, but um, yeah, it's just harder to make that land. It's sort of like, you know, Trump, we've seen reporting that Trump wants to increase the number of debates and they've roped in Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> and this is this is Rudy's next kind of crusade after the right. Ukraine uh, misinformation in order to try to get a fourth debate against Biden and what do they call him? Basement Biden and all yeah. that, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's just harder to make all of that those criticisms stick when there's just not that it just doesn't really resonate with people you know sort of I guess normal people who aren't on Twitter all day maybe right no I think that's true and I think Biden I mean for better or worse almost everyone finds him likable even people who don't like him you know who think maybe he's too old or too scattered or too boring you don't he's just not the figure that kind of evinces this visceral hatred and he's not a woman so he doesn't have to deal with that piece of it and I think you know we've kind of seen the Trump campaign's attempts to define him like they kind of went with the creepy route for a while and Don Jr. was calling him a pedophile and ridiculous things like that but what you know they're trying to play off of the Joe Biden's too touchy thing um but you know I think we haven't seen that stick for a number of reasons not least of that is that we already kind of had a nationwide reckoning with Joe Biden's touchiness. And that was a political, you know, kind of, I don't know, a political storm that he was able to survive and that he had enough people saying he's not, you know, he's not sexually gross. He's just paternalistic. He, he needs to get with the times and realize he can't just touch women, you know, but there was never really a point put on it. That was like, he's, uh, you know, that he's invasive in a way that's malicious and not just kind of like, okay, Joe, come on, get it together. Right, old Uncle Joe kind of right. thing. Right. Not to mention, you know, Trump has had, what, 20 women accuse him of sexual assault. So, you know, you have that. And then they've tried to do this kind of basement. He's hiding. He won't come out. But, you know, as we've seen from the Tulsa rally, so won't most people. So it's not like it's really a... I know they're really trying to push this, like, you're a sheeple if you care about your health kind of thing. But right. I think vast majority of Americans, even the Trumpster types, are kind of hewing to that line more than to the president's line on this. Right. So, yeah, speaking of the Trump campaign, like you said, we had a New York Times poll come out Wednesday morning showing Biden leading Trump by, I think, 14 points nationally. Mm-hmm. A week or two ago, we had a, a CNN poll showing pretty similar results. And... That led, I think we touched on this last week or the week before that led to this whole revitalization of the unskew the polls movement (laughs) where Mm -hmm. some Republicans want to argue that there aren't enough Republican respondents in these polls and therefore it's kind of weighted too heavily towards Democrats or it doesn't capture the full amazing Republican enthusiasm (laughs) uh, kind of thing. And so I guess there's been other reports that like Brad Parscale, the Trump campaign manager, is on the outs. There's all these polls. I mean, do you think, is that inevitable that Trump is going to have to shake up his campaign team or make some staffing changes or are heads going to roll? 
I mean, they probably will because he's so vindictive and has never really shown a propensity for taking any self-ownership of anything that goes wrong. But, like, every single time we've seen the pivot narrative, the now is the time for Trump to, I don't know, grow up or be a president or forget his political grievance. I mean, we've had almost four years of it at this point, and he has never shown an interest or an aptitude in doing that. Like, the most we've seen is him giving one kind of monotoned speech where he sticks to the teleprompter and everyone's like, wow, great presidential. And then he's back to tweeting, you know, in the car ride home. So, I mean, I think, sure, Trump can get rid of Brad Parscale. He can bring in Lewandowski. He can do whatever he wants. But he, his brand is, this is who I am. I'm unapologetic. I don't play by your political rules. And I honestly don't think he has the capacity to change that no matter who he puts around him. And I just, I think to some degree, last time he hit, you know, it was a lightning strike of a a moment where a lot of people had a lot of grievance and a lot of animus and to some degree backlash against Obama's presidency. And he happened to be well positioned against a candidate that was already disliked for a whole host of reasons. And there are now we're in the midst of a pandemic, which he's almost universally considered to have bungled you know, the economy is in the toilet and he's running against someone who may be bland, maybe too centrist, but likable in a way that is a complete foil to Trump, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, even the make America great again slogan just rings so much more hollow when the president has been in office for four years. It's sort of like make America great again, as if it's a sort of future tense statement, Mm -hmm. you know? It's hard to, it's hard for that to be your whole political brand when you are the one in power. Right. And, you know, you've had a a Republican Senate the whole time, a Republican House for two of the, those, Mm -hmm. two of the years of your presidency and sort of like, why isn't it great already? And now, you know, we've seen Trump try to pivot to transition to greatness, all these, or keep America (laughs) great, all all these things. But obviously, you know, the MAGA is the, that's the bread and butter. And um, it's hard to it's hard to move on from that and make a case that like we still need to make America great again when you have been in that position to Mm -hmm. do so, I guess for, yeah, four years. I mean, and that's something that I just think I know they're the Trump people are pushing for more debates and that, you know, that's the oldest nugget of political wisdom that whoever's asking for more debates is losing. But, Mm. and I know they're doing it because they think, I mean, Biden is a self-admitted gaffe machine. You know, he says dumb things all the time, but I just, I think, you know, you put them in a debate, he's going to get the questions that an incumbent would get. You know, to some degree, it is easier to be a challenger than an incumbent because you don't have to answer to your record. But for Trump, I mean, you're completely right. He, his whole brand is being an insurgent, an outsider, not in the swamp. And now he's going to have to answer questions like, you know, whenever he says anything about draining the swamp or this or that, you know, the moderators are just going to be like, okay, so why haven't you done it, you know? Or when he blames any of the slew of people that he's hired and fired for being X, Y, Z, you know, the natural question is, well, why'd you hire them? Why didn't you fire them sooner? I mean, I agree with you. I think his brand of hatred of the establishment and the kind of burn it all down mentality that Steve Bannon brought to his original campaign doesn't work so well when he's had four years and you know this isn't completely his fault but he is going out on a note of plague 
and economic devastation. I mean, that's not a place that any incumbent wants to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it was pretty genuinely surprising to see the jobs report last month showing an increase in jobs. Uh, obviously, the pandemic plays a big role in that. As you know, more places open up and restaurants and all these and hospitality and um, I guess even health you know healthcare offices, dentists' offices, mm-hmm. and, and other other places kind of get back up and running. But um, even Trump's I guess now outgoing economic advisor Kevin Hassert. Uh, was saying as recently as like a month ago that unemployment could be in the double digits by November. And that's just a, that's a very tough position to be in. Right. And when people are not working and struggling to make ends meet, there's not much kind of MAGA, I don't know, (laughs) chutzpah that you can really, I don't know, convince him otherwise that things are great or he, you know, deserves another shot. So lots can happen, lots can happen between now and November, but that's sort of where we stand for now. I mean, lots can happen. And I think that every single, uh, you know, PTSD infused Democrat from 2016 is like, oh, there's five months where, you know, everything to go wrong for James Comey to send his letter. (laughs) But I think part of that that we're seeing right now is there are five months where we don't have any assurance that things aren't going to get worse than they are now. Because like we had we're back you know, to kind of like March pandemic level exactly. new cases every day, you know, and um, here we are. It's almost July, which is just pretty, pretty depressing. Well, and that's the really, I think, infuriating thing as like, a, you know, a lay person, not even as a journalist. You feel like we made this collective social sacrifice to essentially, you know, live under house arrest for three months. And I, the implicit understanding there is we are all going home so you, the government, can set things up so that when we go back into the world, it's safer than it was in March. You know, right. whether that be widespread testing, which, as Josh has told us, the federal government is allowing to lapse or, you know, working on, if not a vaccine, then treatments, you know, that kind of thing. So that when we come out of the world in June, it's different. And for the most part, it's not that different. So now we just have people going back out into the world and predictably huge spikes again and people getting kind of laid back about mask wearing, accompanying spike there. And also just like alarming numbers of young people getting sick, right? Right. I mean, in some of these states that are opening up with, you know, bars and kind of I don't know, gyms and all these mm-hmm. kind of other close quarters type types of things. Um, yeah, stay safe out there, for <laughs> sure. And I mean, I know you can't blame Trump for all of it, but at some level, the federal messaging has been, just the messaging bit has been horrible. Right. I mean, yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, he said, if you're a young person, don't worry about it, you know? Right. Yeah. And, you know, we had a couple months of daily coronavirus task force briefings mm-hmm. as all over the place and kind of a mess. Those were, we at least heard from public health experts pretty much every day about sort of what the latest was, what the what the guidance was. And now, even yesterday, you had Anthony Fauci and the director of the CDC and other health experts say they haven't spoken to Trump in, you know, right. a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, we're hearing less and less from those people about just sort of how to live your life and how, how to protect yourself mm-hmm. and how to stay safe. And instead, we have Trump tweeting all sorts of crazy things day in and right. day out. I mean, and the yeah. sum total of that is that he is, doesn't want to deal with it anymore. He doesn't want it yeah. to be the reality anymore, which, yeah, sure, but, I mean, it's not going to go away. And it's, yeah. I don't know, I think his attempt to pivot to his reelection, I mean, is going poorly, as you can see from Tulsa, and I'm not sure how he would expect things to look different in the 
in the future because the, those big rallies are just not, they're not going to be a future of this election cycle. Yeah. And I'm not sure what else he, I don't even know what he, what else he made his name on last time around, right. but it was not his debate performances. Yeah. So I would not expect <laughs> those to salvage him. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the best, the best Trump could do, you know, if we're kind of looking at it objectively is just move them outside. Right. I think it seems like all of the evidence we have is that you're much safer from mm -hmm. the coronavirus if you're outside. That's why restaurants have opened up patios and people are, you know, jamming into the parks and all right. that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, it's the summer. It seems like maybe that would make sense. Just have these outdoor events and and maybe he can get back to some of those pre-pandemic pre level crowds. Yeah. You, I mean, you're so right, but I, I even saw a detail in some article about his um, rally recently where he doesn't like outdoor as much because it doesn't mm. feel as, like, raucous, as energized. Mm -hmm. right. And I mean, which is obviously dumb, and you would think that, like, he would have his best interests at heart here, but, I mean, you'd also think that part of his best interest was to ensure that America has the best testing infrastructure of any country, the only seeming way to me to... Mm, you know, operate any kind of a society while there's a pandemic. And he, you know, as Josh showed us, is doing exactly the opposite. Right, so, right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that, that seems like a good place to leave it. Yep. Um, Josh, we miss Josh Marshall. We miss you. We'll see you next week. <laughs> and um, as a reminder, the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew. I'm drinking it now. The staff is runs on it um it's the best coffee out there except no substitutes you can get your you can get your first order at 20 percent off at gradyscoldbrew.com using the promo code tpm you can also order it off of amazon if that's your thing or you know check it out at your local local grocery store local specialty shop all that kind of stuff support support those local businesses still even as the restaurants are opening up um you know it's tough times for a lot of those places for a while so do what you can to support and uh Okay, thanks very much. Talk thanks, to you next you. week. See you next Bye. week. Bye. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.